Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my guest this week is Winter Miller, who has written, directed, and produced the powerful new play, No One Is Forgotten, which is playing at the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater through July 27th. My conversation with Miller runs a little longer than usual, because she not only had interesting things to say about the creation of her almost literally ripped from the headlines drama, but about the state of contemporary playwriting and producing as a whole. Hello, Winter Miller. Welcome to Broadway Radio. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Uh, We usually start these conversations with a brief description of the play. So could you tell listeners who haven't yet seen it what No One Is Forgotten is about? It's about uh, two women uh, named Lolly and Bang. And they are in a room somewhere in the world. Uh, They don't know where they are. They don't know how long they've been there. And they don't know if they're ever getting out. And they don't know if any of their relatives or colleagues know where they're being held captive. Uh, So it's a story about intimacy and uh, the will to survive. Where did you get the idea for this play? The idea gestated for a long time. Um, the initial uh, bit of it came from uh, when I worked in journalism. I was a news clerk and a researcher at the New York Times, and one of the things that happened uh, was that in 2002, um, there was the um, really just brutal, brutal murder of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl at the hands of Al-Qaeda, and it was um, many people are remember seeing this video um, and it just was it was horrendous and for me that particular moment was the mark of the change in the rules of the game for journalism mm-hmm. that previously journalists or aid workers uh, or even tourists um, thought as Westerners um, that if they were kidnapped they would be traded for weapons or money or uh, other prisoners in exchange Uh, but this this showed that with Al-Qaeda that they only wanted to show a force of might. They weren't interested in getting anything uh, in return. They just wanted the the bragging rights of dominance. And so that meant that people who were doing these jobs, who were reporting overseas, were in a kind of danger that was uh, much different and uh, steeper uh, of a ledge than before. And so I just was thinking about the people that I knew who uh, worked at the New York Times who were international reporters and what was it that made them, uh, you know, continue to do it in the face of the fact that, you know, many of them had loved ones that they wanted to return to after reporting on wars or, you know, wherever. So that was that was on my mind of just that fact, but then also there were reporters who were subsequently kidnapped and held and released. And I was just as interested in what is it that people do while they are in captivity? How do they, you know, 
how do they stay alive? How do they amuse themselves? Is anything funny? What what are those relationships? So those two things um, were on my mind. And I hadn't intended to write this play. Hmm. I mean, one day I intended to, but I intended it to be a much larger cast of people and a much different uh, structure and everything would be different about it. But I was doing a writer's workshop at the Lark Theater in New York City. They had invited, I think it was five or six playwrights to spend a week and we would just come in with new pages every day and there were actors there to read them. And I think we had two actors and uh, and I had planned to write a really mainstream romantic comedy um, <laughs> with um, a heterosexual couple because I just I really wanted to see my work produced and it seemed like my work was too political or too challenging or something for theaters to be willing to get on board with it. So I thought if I just shoot something right down the middle like I'm seeing get produced, that then I can, you know, see what that's like and just see if, you know, how much can I kind of bend my own will to do something that I think would be seen. And of course, my will is very hard to bend. And as soon as I sat down to write, uh, these two characters popped up. They started playing Hangman, which is exactly how the play begins. Very little of it has changed. Um, I've made cuts and I've deepened some emotional beats greatly. But what flowed out was this relationship between these two people that I was discovering as they were telling it to me. So I was much more stenographer and listener than driver. And I teach a lot of playwrights and the thing that I say to them is follow your instinct, follow your guess. So that if something takes a turn that you didn't expect rather than say, oh, this is stupid, that would never happen. Or no, I can't write about that, that's taboo. To just say yes and let it take you where it takes you and follow it. And so I thought, well, I better heed my own advice and see what happens. And so this play uh, unfolded rather than the rom-com I was anticipating. But it unfolded in the space of that week. That's fast. Did you do any kind of research or had you been researching all along as you talked to colleagues and friends? Or was that not important in terms of the way you have uh, these characters interact? Um, no, the research is important. Some of it was just that because I kept finding myself paying attention to these stories. When they mm-hmm. would come up in the newspaper, I would read them. Or, you know, I was always finding myself drawn to anything that I could glean from them. So I was always following it. Even though after I'd written the play, there were all these other things that I discovered, like, you know, the show Serial followed military captive Bo Bergdahl, or the newspapers followed uh, Otto Warmbier, who held in Korea, you know, or there were Times journalists who were held in Libya. So I was just, you know, or there was uh, James Foley. Um, And there's a really incredible documentary about James Foley that's on HBO. There's also a documentary called For Theo Who Lived. And so many of these things I saw after I'd written, but they just helped me to inform what it was that I was doing and how I wanted to do it. Um, But yes, it also, someone I met 
at an artist retreat who had been held captive. And so I yeah. asked him about, about his experiences. And so it was just me thinking about kind of all of these things and folding them in uh, as, as they seemed to sort of organically pop up. Now, as uh, performed in this production um, at the Rattlestick, the characters are played by two really terrific female actors. But when I took a look at your script, it said the characters could be played in different combinations of uh, of genders. And so I'm wondering two things. One, why you wrote it, uh, or, or at least gave uh, that kind of stage uh, direction advice. And two, you were the director of this production. Why did you cast two women? Mm, okay. Uh, I'll try to answer those in <laughs> order. Uh, as the playwright, you know, one of the things about this play is that I've deliberately left um, a lot of things open so that the audience can project their own fears or experiences onto these two characters so that we are um, in some ways in captivity with them while also being a step away and watching them, which is also how the staging is set up to to facilitate that in it's in the round or in the square since there are four <laughs> sides. So I wanted people to be able to sort of project things onto these actors. And I was most interested in writing really good roles for women because I feel like we never or very rarely get to see women be physical with each other on stage. We don't mm-hmm. get to see them be protagonists. They're often, you know, the friend or the love interest or something. And I just wanted to see um, what do two women do? You know, how do they build each other up? How do they rip each other apart? Just as as happens in life. So that's why uh, I, you know, went with two women. But I was always curious what would we project onto in that cell if it was um, a man and a woman, if it was um, people who were trans, if it was two mm-hmm. men? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think part of it is that the audience is wondering, well, how did these two people get in here? Is it something about, uh, you know, is it their gender? Is it their race? I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that I believe that the, you know, the race should be open, but I've put in a few signifiers that lean towards having someone who is you know, African-American as one of the characters. But I, you know, and I did that partially because the default tendency for most places is to cast people who are white. And so I always try to put things into my play that are unavoidable mm-hmm. so that um, there is more of a necessary uh, diversity in casting. I thought it would be really cool to have a rotating cast, that you have um, four actors and that depending on which night you go, you either see, uh, uh, you know, a man and a woman, two women or two men, and how is the experience changed by how those particular characters embody those roles, but what is the chemistry between them and what are the assumptions that we make? In addition to how do we make assumptions to if someone is from an Arabic-speaking uh, mm-hmm. country, or, you know, what is, what is it that we assume about people uh, and how they, you know, how they are captured and how they survive. So, you know, from a commercial standpoint, if you can get the same audience to come see your play three times. <laughs> well, now you make me really want to uh, see that. I've I've read um, uh, some of the uh, advanced reviews are saying... Mm-hmm. I'm not listening. 
reviews. Okay, I'm not going to tell you if it's good (laughs) or bad, but I am going to say this. Some people have drawn comparisons to Waiting for Godot. Um, and I, was I don't think you. I don't think you could help but draw that comparison. And uh, I'm certainly honored to be compared to that play because it's an example of a play in which we know absolutely nothing about these people. Don't know how they got there, how long they've been there, right. what they're doing there, and why they won't leave. You know, I too wanted to be able to write a play in which those other things, you know, kind of markers were absent so that we could just focus on what it feels like to be in captivity and how these two people work around it. Yeah, it's obviously as you've been describing it and uh, I think as I start off by saying it's very powerful play but it's not a grim play. There are also lots of moments of levity maybe surprisingly. Was that something that that flowed naturally or something that you had to go back and put in to just make it easier, if you will, for the audience to go through this experience with these uh, two people? I mean, what I will say is that the pacing of the play uh, and how the scenes unfold and what happens in them is carefully calibrated to what I think an audience can tolerate and will lean into and also will be able to take a breath and and enjoy that levity. So it's, it's very carefully and meticulously done. In the last uh, week before we opened, I cut out 13 pages. Oh my gosh. Um, mm-hmm. So there were a lot, of, a lot of dead darlings of a play that was already pretty taut, um, but I realized I wanted it to be more so. I always felt like the play should be 87 minutes, and it is. Uh, occasionally it's 88 minutes. Yesterday it was 83. I don't know uh, if they were doing a speed round or something. But Why 87 um, minutes? I don't know. I mean, the thought was, oh, it should be a 90-minute play with no intermission and just kind of straight through. But somewhere along the line, as I went into rehearsal and could feel it, I just felt like this is what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like a play should be only as long as it needs to be and no longer. Since I was directing it, I just had a sense of this is the particular right amount of time. The strange thing is that before I cut out the 13 pages, it was running at just under 90 minutes. And after I cut out the 13 pages, <laughs> it was running at 90 minutes. So that was um, <laughs> bewildering, but um, but just fine. Um, but in terms of the writing, from the very start, uh, even that first hangman scene, it was funny. I think humor is the only way to get through things that are um, unbearable and intolerable. And so um, it's really important to me to have that as uh, part of my work because um, that's who I am. That's how I exist mm-hmm. in the world. And many people who see the play who know me well, you know, they're saying, oh, I, I, you know, I hear you speaking those words. And I say, sure. I mean, those, those two characters are me in dialogue with myself. Are you willing to share anything of what you cut out? There was a scene in which that I, that I really enjoyed in which they're delivered a bowl of food and it looks incredibly ominous. And instead of sort of going into directly speaking about how frightening this is, one of the characters chooses to take on this kind of bad British accent, like, 
where's the king's taster? And then the <laughs> other one jumps in and is like, he is gone, sir. Gone? And it's just this very silly um, mm-hmm. kind of medieval thing. I always found it really funny and I laughed at it, but I realized that where it was, it was slowing down the procession of what we needed to do and needed to accomplish and that the play was functioning as an express train and that something like that made it a local stop and that we as the audience needed to just proceed through and it was certainly a case of less is more also i think that it sort of brought up this question of if it was right there how long would this particular game go on in this circumstance and that the humor was detracting from the very real circumstances of what they were engaging with and that what I needed to do was to balance when are they using humor because the circumstances are so dire and when are they using humor because they're so damn bored. This was a moment in which the circumstances were particularly dire. They're very hungry, they're very thirsty and so just didn't belong there and so I took it out. Part of the challenge is letting the audience know from the get-go that this is a play in which you can laugh and that there's space for that. But the calibration of having the actors leave space for the laughter and continue like uh, a freight train is, you know, it, it's it's challenging. And, so, you know, sometimes the actors are moving so quickly that people don't laugh because they want to make sure that they hear everything they, that yeah. the actors are saying. Now, you mentioned that you directed this. Was that something that you wanted to do or was it originally or was it that you couldn't find the exact right director for it? It was uh, it was a couple things. I had worked with some directors doing readings of it and there were certainly directors whom I admired who I thought would be just incredible with it and uh, with whom I shared the text and they were fans of it but it didn't fit into their schedule and Mm. also uh, I was going to produce it myself and there's so much more support and prestige if a theater is doing a play. Other times when I was doing readings and workshops around the country I found that there were some directors who they would see the scene one way and then I would have to undo what they had done because they weren't getting it and so because Mm. I was spending so much time being so hands-on I thought I actually know more about this play than anyone else and I know I know what it's supposed to be and I haven't ever directed before and I haven't ever wanted to direct my own play before that seemed like the height of foolishness but one day I I just kind of sat up in bed and I saw the staging I saw what the stage looked like there's you know sort of a ma- a magic trick in the play and I saw mm-hmm. how that worked and what it was And I knew that it was going to be audience on all four sides. And so from that, I just thought, I think that I should direct this play, even though everyone I know is probably going to say you should never direct your own work, certainly not a premiere and certainly not as someone who's never directed before. And some people did say that, but then other people were like, oh, yeah, great choice. (laughs) So, you know, there were certainly times when I thought this is, you know, this is madness. What? what have I done and what am I doing but I felt that it would be the most direct route between playwright and director to have it be self-contained okay and the other thing that I just want to say about sort of the earlier question about Godot is that you know people cite Godot because it's so well known and Beckett Mm. is so well known but my influences for this play are just as much Maria Irene Fornes and Carol Churchill you know I'm always 
always thinking about Carol Churchill's play Far Away, in which we don't know who these people are, what's going on, why they're in danger, where they're going, what's going to happen to them. And even the metaphors are confusing or, or not, not entirely clear. But when I watched that play, all 45 pages of it, I was completely riveted. And same with Fornes. What Fornes does in a lot of her plays is she enters mid-scene and exits mid-scene. And this entire play is entering scene and ending mid-scene. So, you know, I was, you know, more influenced by Fornes and Churchill. It's just that the, the shape or the circumstance is like Godot because it's just people sitting there in one place. When I did set out to write my rom-com, um, I thought single set, two people, because it's the cheapest thing to produce. You were going to write this rom-com because it was uh, potentially more commercial. And then in doing this show, you produced it yourself. I'm wondering why you think it is that contemporary theater isn't more accepting of, at least here in this country, of plays that are dealing with big, serious subjects like your plays do, like this one does, like Inda 4 did. We see those kinds of plays more in Britain. Well, I think we do get a lot of them. I mean, I think that plays like uh, Ruined in the Continuum, um, I mean, I could, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Our Lady of Chibejo, I, I could I could list a lot of them who, which have been incredibly well received and uh, like eclipsed, you know, which went to Broadway. But I think that the the combination for women who are writing has to be this sort of magical thing of who is supporting the work and who is believing in the work and how does it get there. And, um, you know, it is it is easier always, always for men to get produced. That's mm-hmm. still what it is. That's still the, the sort of calculus. And it is easier for plays about men to get produced, even though the ticket buyers are women and even though you know audiences are hungry for plays by and about women. Uh, the Wolves and Men mm-hmm. on Boats, like those are mm-hmm. female cast plays, large female cast plays that you know people are really interested in. This particular industry is not interested in producing work by women, uh, by women over 40, you know, with roles for women. That's a harder uh, thing to climb. And so then when you add in um, something that is political to that, I think people are concerned with, well, you know, what are the politics of that? But if you notice, you know, there's no there's no trouble getting a revival of Boys in the Band or... Uh, Angels in America, or, you know, you can just keep naming play after play that is written by a gay man, um, often a white gay man, but that is about something that is incredibly political, that is about the body and is about, you know, the political climate. And those plays are seen as big plays and important plays, uh, but, you know, other plays that are either more intimate or are about or take place, you know, in Africa, for example. I think the theater goers are super hungry for them, but I think that the people who are programming are thinking, oh, I can only do this, or it would be a risk to do that, and so there's less of a drive for that. But plays written by 
gay men are produced so much more often than plays written by lesbians. You know, something I've always wondered, if if you took one of my plays and you put the name of a successful uh, male writer on it, then what would its trajectory be, right? If If no one is forgotten had been said to have been written by Tony Kushner, wouldn't those readers have wanted to read it immediately instead of just seeing that it was by Winter Miller and just kind of putting it on the, the stack to read later or something like that or never? And the other part of it is how does age work? You know, theaters are so excited to kind of break in the new shiny playwright and be able to say, oh, we introduced them first. So once you've had your uh, your first kind of breakout, if that's not followed by a series of breakouts um, for any number of reasons, then um, you're no longer shiny and new and it's a harder mountain to climb. But if you look at if you look at the number of women writing who aren't getting their works produced in, you know, I can mostly speak for New York because that's where I live, but there are there are so many incredibly powerful, wonderful plays written by women and trans people but they aren't they aren't making it through the gate well i'm glad and i'm sure the people who have had a chance to see um no one is forgotten are glad that you got this one uh through for us so thank you for it and thank you for talking to us about it thank you so much thank you for your interest and we run until july 27th at rattlestick and information about tickets is at nooneisforgotten.com and thank you so much for your support and appreciation and thank you for joining us we hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other broadway radio podcasts which you can find on broadwayradio.com <laughs>